much of the story Western religion that does separate humans from the earth and makes us uh, a separate entity from the natural world is implicated in the mess that we're currently in to begin with. So, hey, gang, summer's over and it's time for more of the How Do You Like It So Far podcast. We're thrilled to be back here in the studio uh, at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at USC. Here with my co-host, the amazing Henry Jenkins. I'm Colin McClay, and uh, we have a great welcome back show lined up for you. And we're joined today by Sarah McFarland Taylor, who is an associate professor of religion at Northwestern and also in the environmental policy and culture program. And she's written, I think, a really interesting new book on uh, echo piety, green media, and the dilemma of environmental virtue. So, so Sarah, what do? Let's start with something very basic. What do you mean by echo piety? Okay, so I'm not the first to use this term, but I'm probably the first person to use it in this way. Um, basically, I'm using the term eco-piety as kind of a shorthand to denote the practice of a kind of environmental virtue. And what that means is, in the context of the book, this is a piety that is largely private, individual, voluntary, and personal, it's most enacted in the realm of consumer purchase and or implemented with one's, within one's home. And I give a variety of examples and case studies of that. Consumer acts of eco-piety range from buying the right kind of recycled toilet paper to recycling your plastic water bottle, which, as most of us know, aren't really being recycled now and to bringing your reusable bags to the grocery store and buying organic food to, like Henry, driving a Prius. Yes, indeed. Um, I mean, I bought a Prius to be ecologically responsible when I moved to L.A. Am I not virtuous? <laughs> well, that's, um, that's one of the debates in the book, because one of the things I argue is that in American culture, in the marketing of environmentally virtuous practices, in green environmental messaging, there's a kind of intertwining with, of what I call eco-piety with a consumer piety. And that eco-piety is most often prescribed in practice through an act of consumer piety or virtuous consumption. But one of the things that I get into the book to answer your question is that there is a problem of moral offset or um, what behavioral psychologists moral self-licensing. And that's when our doing good things, like buying a Prius, like driving a Prius, might actually legitimate our transgressive behavior in other areas. So we're so good that we're driving a Prius that we might drive more. Or we're so good about driving our Prius that it doesn't matter that we go on this shopping spree. Or fly around the world to as many academic conferences as we possibly can. Nobody, I'm not implicating anybody in that statement. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's complicated. And, um, and I get into some of those complications in the book. So Elizabeth Warren this past week talked about the ways in which debates about straws and hamburgers were increasingly a distraction from the environmental movement and sort of implied that they were trumped up by... Fox News and by Republican ideologues and so forth. But understand, this is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. That's what they want us to talk about. This is your problem. They want to be able to stir up a lot of controversy around your light bulbs, around your straws, and around your cheeseburger. Is that the case? Are we focusing on the wrong things? Actually, I would say if we're it depends on how we're talking about straws and hamburgers. So if we are framing things in terms of, or the environmental messaging we're receiving is practice eco-piety next time you go to TJI Fridays or wherever you're going to have dinner or drinks, um, abstain, virtuously abstain from that plastic straw, refuse to have that plastic straw 
and make this act of eco-piety in, um, in abstaining from it, then she's right, that is a distraction, and that really has virtually no impact whatsoever. If we're talking legislatively and in terms of public policy of enacting, let's say, a plastic straw in all coastal cities so those plastic straws don't end up you know, in the water, or if we're talking about manufacturing regulations across the board that say your uh, plastic straws must be corn-based and easily biodegradable so that when they hit the ocean, you know, they dissolve, then that's productive discussion. And similarly, on the beef front, and I know this is a very touchy front for a lot of people, I do think the constructive conversation is not, did you eat a hamburger today or not, Henry, but what are we doing in terms of policy to make sure, to make it so we don't have these huge unsustainable feedlots that, that are our requirements about how cattle are raised are that they need a certain amount of space, that they be grass-fed, that they be, be raised in such a way that actually there are arguments that grasslands pro- provide an important carbon sink for uh, absorbing greenhouse gases. And so a, a few <laughs> cattle on uh, a, a well-taken-care-of grassland actually can be a more sustainable model of raising beef. But putting this in the realm of individual eco-piety, individual practice, is really, really misleading. And it, it sort of blames the individual for more, for larger structural forces going on and uh, the impact of corporate interests. So, for instance, you guys are all in California and uh, if the environmental messaging is telling you to take shorter showers and individually practice, practice this eco-piety of turning your shower off quickly, that's one thing. If it is instead focusing on legislating low-flow showerheads across the board, or if it's tackling agricultural use of water, which is the largest use of water in California or industrial use of water, that's much more productive than placing it in the realm of personal, individualized, voluntary eco-piety that has nothing to do with anything having to do with corporate, a, a more collective regulation or collective action or um, public policy going on. So I hear you on the the ultimately the the much bigger stick of policy change to make you know deep systemic changes that will support a healthier environment. But it feels like there's something between the eco-piety of me refusing a straw and that policy change, which mandates, you know, either straws not be used or that they be a certain kind. And and I wonder where, you know, this kind of collective eco-piety or norms around how we deal with whatever it is, whether it's travel or cars or straws or anything else, how those, you know, those to me seem somewhere between where we start, me doing it individually, and where we end, hopefully, with policy change, especially in a moment where, at least nationally speaking, I don't think, I, you know, there's a lot of us have a, much confidence in in Washington in the near term and making these kinds of changes as they continue to be eroded. Maybe in California, we have some higher hopes, but even those things are up in the air. So how, do, so what's that, to me, that feels like that's where culture and norms and uh, shared behaviors that we agree on could be helpful in creating and like either demanding that policy or creating the possibility, opening the policy window for something that's more you know significant to be made. So when my kids went from like using straws all the time to just saying, no way, we're not taking a straw, we refuse a straw. Um, I thought that was pretty remarkable and clearly a very a modest impact in the near term, but, but an attitude in them that could create other opportunities. Right. So one of the things I do make clear in the book, or hopefully I make clear in the book, is that I'm definitely in the both and camp. So like Henry, I drive a hybrid and I engage and I take my reusable bags to the grocery store and I recycle, and I do all of these things. So I'm not in an either-or type of camp. Where I think it is distracting, as Elizabeth Warren said, or maybe misleading, is a lot of the 
the sort of greenwashed advertising that we get and a lot of the environmental messaging that is focused on the individual and this being a voluntary non-governmental act is counterproductive in many ways because people think I've done my little thing. Now I've done my part to, you know, save the earth for today and I don't have to think about it anymore. So just a consciousness of this is important. And the other thing is if it's just, if this kind of environmental messaging is just focused on the individual and personal things, what it translates into is the eco-pie, a small percentage of eco-pious people in the world, like you and your kids, gone, will do these eco-pious virtuous acts, and the rest of everybody will not. So you end up getting a small subset of the population practicing these, this eco-piety, and what really matters in terms of scale is, you know, what hundreds of thousands of people and billions of people are doing. And I'm not sure if you get to those kind of policy measures unless you get into the, out of that individualistic, personalized, voluntary mode. I, in a weird way, the fact that China stopped taking our plastic, I think, is a kind of a positive thing because it allows us to stop lying to ourselves that when we put the plastic in the recycling, you know, only about 8% of that is getting recycled, and much of it has been ending up in the oceans, in the Pacific Ocean, and a lot of it that gets shipped to China has gone into the ocean, uh, creating terrible, terrible issues with plastics in our ocean. So making us have to throw that plastic away and kind of own that in a weird way can be a bit more productive than the illusion of recycling it. Um, now, that isn't to say glass, aluminum, all, cardboard, all of those things can't be recycled but they can, as, because they can, but plastic, actual plastic is, is much trickier in terms of the, the real benefits that you would get from recycling it vis-a-vis -vis redu reducing carbon and the use of fossil fuels. So let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe we could call them echo bad boys. We're, you know, I'm thinking about in the straw debate, Donald Trump's campaign pointedly marketing uh, plastic straws with Make America Great Again on them, or the kind of pollution porn that you talk about in the book. So what's going on there uh, in this kind of continuum we're developing? Yes. Well, there is a way in which extreme, these messages of environmental virtue and personal piety generating this kind of backlash movement. So an example of this would be uh, the chapter that I focus on the Prius ownership and the way the Prius has become this signifier of eco-piety or the practice of environmental virtue. And then there is a whole backlash of uh, diesel truck owners who illegally modify their trucks. They take the, the filters off their trucks and they... They sort of hack the uh, clean burn system in their truck's computer, and then they end up doing what's called rolling coal, where they just spew dark black diesel smoke into the air. And um, a lot of this is a reaction to what, what they criticize as being this kind of sanctimonious notion of being a virtuous Prius owner, and where they point to the hypocrisy here is here's the environmentalist living in the very nice environmentalist house and shopping at Whole Foods and buying their apples from uh, New Zealand. But who has built their house and who has trucked that food to Whole Foods? And these are working people using diesel engines. So we can all feel very good about our hybrids that we've bought, as I said, me included. Um but they're, they're, they're making a kind of class critique here, that sense of self-congratulation about our own eco-piety needs to be troubled. Now, they do that in many offensive ways, but it is a, a sort of a moral critique being made nonetheless. Well, in discussing this in terms of piety, virtue, morality, you're clearly drawing on your background as a scholar of religion. So what does religious studies give us to think about some of the issues we've been discussing? <laughs> I often get colleagues who kind of scratch their head 
when I talk about what I'm studying and why they can't imagine that um, religious studies has anything to do with this. I think more of my colleagues understand a little bit better why I'm studying what I'm studying. But I think uh, the realm of moral offsets and what I discuss in terms of Monin and Miller's research, that whole dynamic of moral licensing when doing good stuff frees us to be bad and those sort of models where we have a banking system of moral credits in which one deposits good deeds that will offset or balance out bad deeds and how it feels fine to commit bad deeds as long as they're offset by prior good deeds. I think we see that in the various abuses in religious institutions. One of my examples in the book is when a pastor who's served his flock and built a church community that emphasizes purity and traditional values, when he's discovered later to be hiring male prostitutes to accompany him for extracurricular activities, in his mind there is often a kind of moral offsetting there, where his being so good, building the church, doing God's work, has licensed him to be bad. And, and also there's often an element of the second model of moral licensing, the kind of establishment of moral credentials. So a demonstration of previous moral virtue um, or known identity as a virtuous person changes the meaning of the bad behavior. So it's not really bad because you know I'm a good person. Also, all of this, Henry, I see figuring strongly into the marketing and practices of eco-piety and my background in religious studies informs that. So that's where moral offsetting comes up quite a bit in the book. And then I also look at the spiritual dimensions of things like not just the marketing, but the consumption of green burial products, the elements of piety and devotion involved in um, getting your environmental species, endangered environmental species tattoo. All of these are really inflected with a lot of the dimensions that we talk about in religion not just piety and devotion, but sacrifice and, and other themes that are prominent in religious studies. So it seems like identity runs through this in so many ways, how we, how we perceive ourselves, how others may perceive us by looking at the Prius that we drive um, or the other authority we derive from you know, sort of being responsible members of the community. So I'm like... I'm wondering, both on the um, religious front and cultural front generally, how recognizing there are some real challenges uh, to, to to deal with um, the you know the, the, this idea that if I do this one little thing that that's going to you know offset all the other bad things I do. Um, how how do we use what 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 can we draw on from from those from the religious space? I'm going to put the other kind of broader cultural space adjacent to it or overlapping with it. What are things that we can learn from? What are resources there to draw on to um, help us to move forward in ways that don't lead to the kind of immediate end of the planet? <laughs> well, it's just one thing that I contribute, perhaps from religious studies, and that is, um, there's a lot of focus on the book and sort of an open-ended question of how do we motivate society to deal with open-ended challenges without freezing up or shutting down? How do you involve the heart and mind in story? Um, uh, you know, you captivate with wonder and possibility. Um, in some cases, you break the ice with laughter and tears, but something that I contribute from the many years of doing religious studies scholarship is the recognition of how powerful stories are in shifting social energetics and actually changing the world, and sometimes in short order. So one of the other open questions in the book is whether media can be an effective tool in shifting social energetics and affecting social change, whether it can address, whether it can motivate society to deal with these open-ended challenges. And my short answer there, from all I know of the way that narratives have changed the world and continue to change the world uh, from a religious studies perspective, is that yes, 
um, but that it's tough, that those efforts are always being thwarted and swallowed. In, in, in the case of my book, In Eco-Piety, I talk about um, market logic and ridiculously well-funded, powerful corporate interests um, swallowing those, uh, those attempts and that how when media makers um, innovate new and creative strategies to try and circumvent that kind of swallowing process that goes on, like a virus, those corporate entities and interests quickly adapt to shut down or co-opt those experiments. So it's an enormous struggle. Um, this is nothing new. <laughs> I mean, there are elements of it that are new, but I guess maybe it's an old story. Um, but I do think um, that this media as a storytelling tool that can make um, a real positive difference in addressing climate change and addressing the environmental destruction um, that we have going on. Ironically enough, because uh, there are a number of historians, religious or secular, that argue that uh, much of the story um, uh, of, of Western religion that does separate humans from the earth and makes us uh, a separate entity from the natural world um, is implicated in the mess that we're currently in to begin with in addressing climate change and addressing the environmental destruction um, that we have going on. Ironically enough, because uh, there are a number of historians, religious or secular, that argue that uh, much of the story um, uh, of, of Western religion that does separate humans from the earth and makes us uh, a separate entity from the natural world um, is implicated in the mess that we're currently in to begin with. So we come back to a theme that we talk about the show a lot. Stories matter and matter who's, who tells the stories. It matters who listens to the stories and what we do with them. Uh, lots been said about the fact that the environmental crisis has been hard to turn into a story. For a variety of reasons, it doesn't fit the traditional expectation of what a news story is and that it doesn't move that much day by day. It's not bound up with events in quite the same way. It doesn't have human, it doesn't have an individualized human agency in it. Lots of reasons why it's a hard story to sell. So is one of the reasons that we fall back on echo piety is that it's an easier narrative to construct than to deal with the complexities of the wicked problem that the environment represents for us? Oh, I also think that there, there are enormous vested corporate interests in promoting the notion of eco-piety. So one of the examples I look in my look at in my book, and this is where, you know, I talk about this kind of dynamic of contrapuntal motion. Um, I look at examples from um, carbon sin tracking apps. And once again, here's where my background in religious studies comes studies comes in as I look at what are literally sin tracking apps. Um, but yeah, there are these carbon sin tracking apps where you log your sins throughout the day and how much carbon you've consumed and how much you've driven and whether you've, ridden, you've used the dryer or not um, when you did the dishes. Did you, uh, did you put on a heat dry or not? Um, did you use a fan instead of air conditioning? You record all these sins throughout the day. And then some of these apps will give you absolution, as it were. And the absolution is to buy carbon offsets, what some environmentalists have cast as being a kind of modern-day selling of indulgences. Uh, so we buy these carbon offsets through these carbon sin tracking apps, and then often they are linked to, um, uh, like, you know, shopping programs. And they take us via the app to certain stores where we'll, we'll, we'll buy the right products, the eco-virtuous products. That, that the, it's trying to make what looks like an environmental media intervention, these um, carbon sin tracking apps. And then, unfortunately, the result of these apps seem to be to get us to shop more. I, I think it's in the interest of, you know, retail um, spaces to get us to have this easy offset for our shopping because that actually it enables them, you know, to make more profit. Uh, and, and it's been argued also that a lot of these offset buttons on your 
on various airline websites actually encourage people. There's sort of like these buying of indulgences to fly more because you're going to offset that flying. So I've heard two, I mean, among many, but two big forces that are kind of aligned against us potentially um, in a religious context, idea of humans as being separate from the earth and being kind of uh, given the right to extract rather than to the responsibility to care for and work with. And then you have corporate interests, which perhaps up to a point are responding to market uh, passion for more ecologically kind of healthy behavior and products, but are still ultimately responding to capitalism and in a growth mindset where they want to sell more stuff as opposed to selling less. So that, you know, we might make in each space a little bit of progress, but we're kind of going to, it seems like we're hitting a wall. Right. And and they want to promote those stories of eco-piety, and they do. And in a lot of greenwashing campaigns, um, like uh, BP, which changed its name from uh, British Petroleum to, uh, in its advertising, know us now as Beyond Petroleum, because we're all about you know, going beyond petroleum, which is fairly disingenuous. But this idea that we are going to make these problems personal, eco-piety problems, and they have nothing to do with these larger structural forces or what industries are doing and, um, and the lack of regulation on these industries. It's all what you, the personal sinner, really. And, it, it, and to tell you the truth, it really is a Protestant model of environmental sin, piety, and devotion is this very personalized, individualized, you know, priesthood of, of the eco-pious, of individual eco-pious people. This to me is, like, kind of reminds me of Me Too and some of these other movements where on one hand, you're calling out bad behavior of an individual, um, and the temptation is just to focus on the bad behavior of that company, that person, that whatever who did those terrible things, but to not recognize that the system is rigged in a way that enables, encourages, motivates, um, demands those behaviors. And that as a, in that way, you avoid systemic change, which, of course, as you point out, none of those companies want – they want to make the changes that they want to make. They don't want regulatory kind of enforcement that do, that require them to do certain things. So that seems like a real, you know, that, that there's a conspiracy to avoid systemic change. Yeah, there's absolutely, <laughs> there's a lot of vested interest in, in reassuring us that nothing really has to change. We don't have to change our behavior. We, we can cons- keep on consuming at the patterns and the volumes that we have been all along. Nothing to see here, just buy different stuff, the eco-pious stuff and everything will be fine. And I think there's an underlying anxiety there that if you recognize these larger structural issues, that the whole thing collapses. So so I think a lot of our environmental messaging is, don't worry, recycle your um, coffee cup, find a solution for the Starbucks, you know, cups that can be recycled. We just do these things and everything's going to be fine. You can just shop just the way you, you know, you did before. And actually, in one of my chapters, I deal with these eco-chick guides. There are now all of these fashion manuals about how you can be an eco-pious consumer and what purses, what expensive purses to buy to, um, to absolve yourself of eco-guilt, what clothing lines to buy to absolve yourself of eco-guilt, what makeup lines to buy to absolve yourself of eco-guilt. And all of these are about keep on shopping, keep on shopping, everything's okay, we'll just tell you the right brands to buy, Um, but don't change your behaviors and don't start questioning the structural, you know, sort of forces and mechanisms behind the whole, you know, global capitalist consumer culture. And this literally takes us from cradle to grave. Uh, (laughs) you, You wrote about some really interesting burial practices they were off my radar, but are an extension of the eco-piety arguments that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and once again, you know, before we had spoken, Henry, you had brought up the issue of virtue signaling and how much of this is actually virtual, virtual signaling. And I think the eco-burial chapter for me was the hardest to write because 
there's a lot that's ambiguous there. On the one hand, there are these jewelry corporate interests that want to sell you this eco-pious stuff, but they're selling you the banana leaf casket that was fabricated in Thailand and then was shipped overseas to you in the United States with, you know, a lot of carbon miles on it, um, or these really expensive eco-solutions. And eco-burial advocates or green burial advocates will say the greenest container for your body is the one that you don't buy, don't buy, don't die, but don't buy. Um, so a, a natural linen shroud or being buried in a blanket or being buried in a favorite costume, that's the greenest solution. But of course, this idea of green funeral gets kind of swallowed by the funerary industry that's now hawking all of these new, expensive, not very green products. But what was tricky to me in this chapter is I, I really believe this is not about what often conservative pundits dismiss as being virtue signaling. I think the people that chart that choose green burial are really very emotionally, spiritually, and ethically invested in it. I also think that they are working for broader changes beyond just their individual burial. There's a whole network of groups that have organized around this, make it easier to bury without embalming fluids, to bury in wooded areas, to um, link your burial to conserving open lands and natural spaces. And this is very earnestly done and done beyond the individual corpse or the individual body to a more broad-ranging attempt to change the sort of social energetics around death and burial in the United States. So while we don't spend a lot of time talking about environmental crisis on the news, leaving the CNN seven-hour forum of the Democratic candidates aside for the moment, you're finding signs of echo-piety discourses cropping up in very curious corners of popular entertainment. And you write both about Fifty Shades of Grey and about various vampire series as spaces where some of these issues are playing out. So could you say a little more about how this echo-piety discourse finds its way into popular genre? I do talk in the book about the realm of popular culture being the forum where we engage and work out the most pressing moral issues of our day. And actually, in one of the subsections of my book, I, I quote Josh Whedon, who did um, Buffy and Angel and, you know, a number of, of shows in that sort of genre, in which he says, the idea of changing culture is important to me. It can only be done in a popular medium. And then he says, I want to create responsible shows about lawyers and them. I want to invade people's dreams. So one of the things that I was looking at, the book, at in the book is how popular works in of vampire media or popular works such as Fifty Shades of Grey include this kind of environmental messaging. And often it includes what seems like a kind of environmental media intervention going on. But it's a little bit more complicated than that and what seems to be an environmental message that is sort of interrupting the, the um, practices of environmental degradation ends up actually reinscribing many of those same many of those same dynamics. So in the vampire chapter, I was trying to get at and play a bit with the narrative, the, the sort of recurring narrative in, in in vampire media of moral restraint. That and then looking at how rather than inspiring actual restraint with these narratives, that the vampire, and when I say vampire media, um, I mean things like True Blood, HBO's True Blood, and the Vampire Diaries on the CW Network, the whole Twilight mega franchise, and, and even smaller films like Daybreakers. And I look at how, rather than being, rather than their, their production and their their business enterprise being in keeping with those narratives of moral restraint and temperance when it comes to consumption, the merchandising aspects of those tie-ins and, and the tie-ins end up soaking this voracious desire to consume. And this is exactly the kind of consuming desire that many of the themes in the film, in, in the films and videos and various 
cultural works related to, you know, vegeta- so-called vegetarian vampires try to oppose. And, and it's not just vampire media. I mean, one of the things I point to is um, Ellen Moore's work on the Lorax and Ice Age and Wally and how all of these all of these films seem to be these kind of environmental media interventions, as it were, these environmentally themed films with a strong, arguably eco-pious message. But then she talks about all the movie tie-in paraphernalia, all made in China and ending up in the landfill, and uh, how the Lorax becomes, um, you know, run amok in uh, Universal Studio Orlando's Seuss Landing um, and hawking all the countless Lorex plush toys. And, and, and the same thing happens with uh, messages of moral restraint of vegetarian vampires in the franchise of Twilight, where that is a strong message of vegetarianism and moral restraint in terms of consumption. And then, of course, there are a zillion and one vampire products that are that elicit a, a kind of desire to voraciously consume. In terms of Fifty Shades of Grey, <sighs> wow. Well, that was a complicated <laughs> chapter to write. <laughs> um, and, and it might strike you as a little bit odd, but I actually compare E.L. James's story, um, which involves a uh, BDSM couple, but there was a lot of abuse, and and it, at least in the first book, that is not under the rubric of consent. In that book, he actually beats her pretty savage with a belt. She is not consented to it. She never signs a contract. But this story gets parlayed as kind of a romance, and I compared that to the way PR teams. It, of corporate polluters greenwash and send out these greenwashing campaigns and these greenwashing missives that say, you know, actually, we're this incredibly eco-friendly company. Yes, we're Chevron, but look, we're saving tigers. Or BP, you know, we're beyond petroleum. We're all about sponsoring the uh, museums and sponsoring festivals and sponsoring the Olympics and doing for the environment. And there is nothing that is so pronounced in terms of its environmental visual rhetoric than a petroleum company webpage. They all, they're all green. They have green fonts. They have flowers. Um, BP has pictures of like happy cranes down in the Gulf after their Macondo disaster took place. And so there's a way in which we're being lied to here and being told what is really abuse is a romance, um, that they're really loving the environment when really they're abusing the environment. And I compare this to a kind of talking back in participatory culture to Fifty Shades of Grey where E.L. James does a live Twitter meet your fans type of thing and instead of the fans being loving and adoring, they really call her on the fact that that this series really legitimates abuse towards women, and 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 they give her a very very hard time about it. Still, so it's sort of a, a talking back to her, and um, and I just wanted to draw those parallels, which seems like maybe an odd combination. But when I was reading Fifty Shades of Grey, it kept making me think of the, you know carbon industry press releases that I've been reading. So I, I put those two things together. Wow. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I haven't read the book, but I'm really excited to. Um, it sounds like some artistry on your part. I, so I'm one of the things I'm struck by is the trade-offs that we make individually, and it feels like a big problem is sort of maybe for some of us either some combination of information, understanding what are the implications of eating an impossible burger versus a regular, you know, whatever burger, or the me driving the Prius versus flying this many miles a year, whatever. So I may not have that information, and I may not want to know that information because it then would suggest I need to make a behavior change. But I have that you know, sort of those dynamics inside me. And at the same time, companies have something similar, right? Where they're recognizing some value in, and and we'll 
go stick with uh, w- whether it's media companies, for instance, where they they might find that that theme is really productive because it resonates with their fans, and at the same time, the other part of the company is saying we're gonna you know <laughs> we're gonna sell a lot of stuff and not either not caring about that inconsistency or not not being aware fully of that inconsistency or not being able to manage and align those different behaviors in a way that they could say hey we're going to ask you to buy less but you know really changing their own behavior and it feels like so it feels like that, that those that push and pull for us as individuals and also to some degree not to let companies off the hook but that there's some other form of that for them that we need to work through and i don't know and and i'm going to go back to henry where you know i think information is part of it but it's also that it's figuring out the story that makes that infor- that brings that information to life in ways that we for our own behaviors are willing to make harder choices or actual choices that make a difference and also with respect to companies to demand more rather than be told that abuse is actually not that it's actually erotic yeah that abuse is actually love and yeah. romance yeah and so yeah. and we're like we're we're like we i mean i think part of us wants it sounds like we want to believe that in a way because it makes us feel less bad oh yeah and i actually i actually quote Cheryl Crow in that chapter where I'm talking about that, where um, she's got this lyric from her uh, song that says, lie to me, I promise to believe, lie to me, but please don't leave. We want all the things that these companies provide. So, yeah, lie to me, and I promise to believe. We want to believe these things. And, you know, that the maybe the tough thing about my book is that it, it, it sort of, eviscerates or, or, or maybe uncovers many of these things that we don't normally have in our everyday consciousness. And that can be a painful process, but it, it's also really good to know. The, the thing that's liberating about it is, um, and much of this was influenced by um, Gernot Fogner's book, book um, But Will the Planet Notice, is he talks about really the, the liberating thing is don't worry about the small stuff. We're so busy and consumed worrying about these small things and which kind of toilet paper do I buy and do I, you know, do I buy this or do I buy that and do I, um, do I buy, for instance, my students are all, all very proud of their stainless steel swell bottles and I always hate to break it to them just how much, just how much fossil fuel went into making their carbons, their uh, stainless steel swell bottles and that actually just plastic cups would have been more ecologically friendly. But we're, we're so consumed with this minutia that it really keeps us distracted from the big issues, which are about organizing and working towards larger policy changes. And I think that's also where media comes in and the power of story in popular culture comes in as creating those um, those bridges to social action and to policy enactment and, and implementation. And as you said, it seems like such a daunting task, but if we're worried about our, our Beyond Burger, or we're worried about what, what container we're putting our water in, that's distracting a lot of time and energy that could, we could be focusing on other things, such as organizing for change. So are you seeing examples of people constructing alternative narratives that might move us beyond the individualistic ecopiety frame and shift how we think about the environment? Yeah, well, one of the things that I look at in the book, and this is one of these weird mashup things in the book, sort of like PR team and Fifty Shades of Grey, the last chapter of the book is is a mashup of looking at tattoos as media, and then at eco-rap or, or green hip-hop. And one of the things in looking at green hip-hop media that becomes apparent is these alternative narratives in these hip-hop songs are very much about collective action. These are mostly um, African-American hip-hop artists. I feature one hip-hop artist um, who is um, an indigenous teenager, I guess now he's, he's maybe 19, 20, from Colorado, who's a, who's a hip-hop artist. 
body the verse it with Cotton bodies out from the room from the front to the back My shit is hotter than two degrees Celsius One was the planet that's facts And I've been consulting my mama Like how we go count up these commas And give it back to all my people Come on, come on, I'm sick of adults and the ego All of this is about collective action The messages are about people power There's very, very little that's individualistic About their messages of greening the block Or making the kind of changes in their their neighborhoods, but also to society. They're talking about systemic change in many of these eco-rap, you know, songs that uh, is the antithesis of this Protestant individualistic model of how change is going to take place. So now for something completely different. I know you've been thinking a lot about Trump's appeal to the evangelistic community, which I think is something that many of us on the left and on the coast are scratching our head over. So what have you found out about where those connections are making sense for the religious right and Trump? Oh, well, <laughs> um, well, you know what? I, I tell this little story in um, a blog that I wrote. At Northwestern, we did this fabulous conference with the Global Culture and Communication, our Center for Global Culture and Communication, did this great conference on popular culture and populist politics and media ethics in the age of Trump. And we were listening to a range of scholars, and they're all talking about um, populist politics, but nobody was talking about the specifically religious dimensions of Trump's populist devotion. And so I piped up, raised my hand. I'm the only religious studies scholar in the room, which is almost always the case in, um, in these sort of media conferences or at least here at Northwestern. And I raised my hand and I pointed to the powerful mediated religious rhetoric of Donald Trump, Trump's hair that is before he even utters a word. The visual rhetoric of his physical appearance, particularly his hair, is doing powerful cultural work and marking him as in-tribe to conservative evangelicals, marking him as a salvific figure, if you will, as an anointed figure, as blessed or put in place by God, and also as someone who is the victim of spiritual warfare. And, and that's something that I explain a little bit more in the blog, but particularly look at the hair and, and how his hair really takes the format of what's often called the pre-chullet or the preacher man mullet. And I do a kind of visual comparison of Trump's hair to Reverend Billy Burke, a very famous televangelist. I compare his hair to what's often Billy Graham's preacher pompadour. I compare his hair to Reverend Billy, who's a street theater activist who takes on the persona of the televangelist. I mean, he's got the style of the preacher man mullet hair, and he's got that extemporaneous kind of emotive evangelical preacher way about him, and there's so many parallels between the 1992 movie Steve Martin did called Leap of Faith, and a lot of Trump's statements and mannerisms. Now, Steve Martin made that as a comedy to exaggerate these things, but Trump is actually doing them, and he is communicating in a visual way, even in a nonverbal way, with conservative evangelicals in a way that's often missed in media analyses of Trump that focus more on what he's saying and more on his verbal rhetoric than on the powerful religious dimensions of his visual rhetoric. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I knew we had to share that. I want the imagery. (laughs) We'll get it on the website. uh, I, I presented this at the ICA in Prague, and our poor European colleagues were just really wide-eyed and um, <laughs> really upset by this. And I felt so bad. I felt like, I don't know, I, I felt like I needed to go and hold people's hands afterwards. But one of the things I do talk about, and if you do study the history of evangelical aesthetics in the U.S., there is this expression, and Henry, I bet you know this from growing up in where you grew up, is hair up to Jesus, right? This is an expression that exists for a reason, because there is this tradition of exuberant overplus of evangelist, televangelistic hair, this kind of hair up to Jesus. 
And then this also, the connection that this also connects to a whole narrative of spiritual warfare that many people who are not, you know, evangelical scholars or, or study religion in American culture might not know about. They may think this is a marginal phenomenon, as a sort of Pentecostal phenomenon, where if you're doing good work for the Lord and you're doing, you're doing what God has asked and you're being a good Christian, you actually attract spiritual warfare, which are attacks by Satan on you or attacks by the enemy, capital E, on you. And so Trump really fits into this narrative where the more he is attacked, this was more of a case when the Mueller investigation was going on in evangelical circles, or conservative, I should say conservative evangelical, I don't want to you know, paint with one brush, but with too large a brush, but in conservative evangelical circles. The more Trump gets attacked and the more there is scandal and the, the more there is, are reports that would, that would call his morality into question, the more this is evidence that he has triggered the spiritual warfare from Satan. And so this is evidence of his efficacy, that he's actually doing a really good job. And there's also a mechanism for this within the tradition of televangelism, megachurch mega preachers. There's a mechanism of, of, moral, of this kind of moral escape hatch that is activated when preachers transgress, sin, screw up, embezzle funds, you know, sleep with male escorts. And that is that they have been the victim of spiritual warfare. If they were not doing God's work, they would not be attracting the warfare in, in the first place. And so each time Trump faces one of these scandals, it's actually testimony that God has put him in the right place and that he's being effective. So I have to say many of us on the coast probably never thought about Trump's hair in that way. But it could be because we don't see past his skin. And the amount of meanings that have been attached to Trump's orange skin, the human Cheeto, the imagery of skin seems to run through coastal liberal circles instead of the discourse of hair. Yeah, well, you know, that's interesting. What, what do you make of that, Henry, the skin, the, the orange color? Well, for someone who's obsessed <laughs> with racism and race and yeah. racial distinctions and who's who's being constructed as somewhat otherworldly, is not quite human, that monstrous orange skin seems to take on a particular significance in the racial politics. He's, you know, in some ways it may have held at bay a little bit the discourse of white supremacy, because when you're dealing with Trump, it's not white supremacy, it's orange, orange supremacy. supremacy. It's orange supremacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so um, <laughs> I don't know where to go from well, that. Yes, well, with that we Drop may the need mic, to <laughs> we need to wrap up. I think, uh, but it is phenomenal to have you with us, and the insights you bring from religious studies to think about some of these issues are a different take than we hear most of the time. And I really appreciate you sharing. So, you know, the the thing for me, or one big thing for me was. Uh, are kind of around using story to move people up the ladder mm -hmm. of piety towards advocacy and acceptance of change and sacrifice. So the sort of meta frame is like we have to realize that we need to there needs to be real change and sacrifice involved, right? That that being good with our straws isn't enough. And so I guess I heard of sort of how do we use story and use religion to do that, and also how do we how can we be aware of the limitations that those things. Um, create when story might be connected to consumerism or religion might push back against um, in certain ways um, that sort of movement. Um, but it all to me goes into that big, um, you know, uh, winner take all kind of there's going to be sacrifice. We can't, we can't save the planet without making some significant change, which is not what we're doing right now. And that means sort of accepting that we're in a more dire situation situation than we have been willing to accept and that we need to do more than we've been willing to do. Um, yeah, I listened to Sarah through the lens of someone who's very interested in civic imagination stuff. And when she quotes Josh Whedon talking about needing to shape our dreams in order to change our actions, I find that a really compelling description of what pop culture can do as a site of political intervention. And I like the fact that she talks about pop culture at every le level, from the most immediate and personal, um, 
you know, what again, me driving my Prius, do I feel virtuous? Do, how do I use energy beyond that to various forms of, pra- of everyday practice, tattoos she writes about in the book, how people get buried, uh, how people think about um, uh, the, 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 me- the energy they consume. And then she talks about mass culture and she talks about shows like Vampire Diaries and she talks about films like uh, 50 Degrees of... of um, 50 Degrees... Uh, what 50 I, Shades of Grey? 50 Shades of Grey. Yes, 50 Shades of Grey. Uh, that are exploring this question of you, do we love things by abusing them or do we love things by protecting them? And at a deep level, this idea of religion as a kind of story, a meta story, as it were, that permeates through every aspect of popular culture is, I think, a really compelling idea. It's very easy to pull religion as, separate, as a separate little category over to the side and here, as we did with the Diane Winston interview, we're sort of saying it's embedded in popular culture. The ideas of religion are so central to our culture that we don't get rid of them just because we're not believers and just because we're hanging out and watching Netflix. Well, and I think Diane would probably say, and if you haven't listened to that episode, we'll tell you which one it is, but you should go back and listen to it. It's amazing. I wasn't there, but <laughs> I loved listening to it. Um, would say, absolutely say that popular culture is a, our popular culture and um, are kind of the basis for the new religion and spirituality in the way that we kind of navigate the world, right? So, I, you know, I, I, I really appreciated her perspective and the, as you said, the way that she sort of connected all those different um, dots for us. Um, and I, to me, I think it, I, I, I felt like we should, I wanted to get further and I'm, so I'm, I'm very curious to read the book about what we do with those insights and how we take, um, that, you know, take that, that information and actually are able to make real change in the world. And I, you know, she kind of, I felt like she, at least in our conversation, returned to policy a bunch as the way to make change. And, you know, right now we're not we're seeing, if anything, that policy uh, in most instances is undermining change. Um, and I felt like she underestimated the power of the collective ecopiety and social movements to both make progress and to create um, pressure for and enable um, larger policy change. And so, in there, I feel like that that's the territory where I feel that popular culture gives us real power um, if we can take that our you know willingness to be kind of eco-pious and connect that to some grand vision story and a social movement then you start to see social change and so i was even thinking back to she referenced you know saving water in los angeles or in california and of course you know 75% or 80% of the water consumption is for agricultural uses and they finally had a modest uh, water reform a couple of years ago and when the the drought was at its worst um, they challenged um uh, private people to save water and people saved water 25% more water than they were asked to save. So people really did make a significant change uh, in ways that impacted water. But I think also to me that creates a different narrative and that creates opportunity to tell different stories and to imagine different futures where we are participating, we're making progress. And 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 although we hope our legislators are part of that, um, we can make it, we can make progress without them in some instances. So I'm taking the bus down to campus just now. And one of my forms of eco-piety is that I take public transportation in L.A. almost everywhere I can do. And I'm listening to podcasts on my earphone, and I stumble into this. And you've got to hear this, Colin. It's so perfectly sums up everything we talked about in that episode. So I'm going to play it for you now. The light bulb. People said, what's with the light bulb? I said, here's the story. And I looked at it. The bulb that we're being forced to use, number one to me, most importantly, the light's no good. I always look orange. (laughs) And so do you. The light is the worst. But number two, it's many times more expensive than that old incandescent bulb that worked very well. But there it is. We have the light bulb debate. We have Donald Trump's orange skin and the way he's using one to deflect the other, right? He's justifying his utter lack of echo piety and the policies he's done rolled back against the environment based on the most important factor for him is the light bulbs make his skin look orange. It bears mention that 
the global climate strike is coming up from September 20th, 27th. So again, you have youth um, standing up and fighting back at scale after a, you know, a, a, an Atlantic crossing on a, on a, uh, a low or no impact sailboat. Um, so there, there are other narratives and other um, movements afoot that could really scale up this piety in a different way. So given we're trying to encourage participation here, what I wanted to do was throw out a challenge to smart people out there to think about Trump's orange skin and what more we can do with it. So if you send me via email at henryhjenkins.usc.edu a piece about Trump's orange skin, I'll put it up on my blog, and you can we'll share those insights with uh, people uh, as we reflect together on Trump, not only Trump's hair, but Trump's skin and what it has to tell us about the environment. When you said uh, help with Trump's skin, I thought you meant like a skincare product or something. Well, that might be one scenario, <laughs> but let's put our civic imaginations to work and see what we come up with. Sounds good, Henry. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Our amazing producers are Joshua Chang, Lena Bisset, and Sophie Maggi. And we're both lucky to receive funding from the MacArthur Foundation that supports our research and this podcast.